Morning. Uh, children ages two to eight, eight are dismissed for children's church right now. If you want to head out to the lobby, they'll, they'll direct you where to go. Um, so children are dismissed for children's church. Um, well, good morning. Good morning. I don't know about you. I'm still like excited to be back in person. It just felt like we were, <laughs> we were online for so long. It's like, yeah, we're here together. This is great. Um, we're going to jump back into Ephesians. If you were here with us in July, we spent four weeks in Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 4, and now, I don't know how many months later, we're, we're jumping back in. So turn, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to, uh, uh, to Ephesians 5, and I think in a minute, I think ushers are coming with Bibles but I don't see them yet. So um, if you're using one of our, one of the church Bibles is page 191, no, 119, 119, I believe, um, Ephesians 5. So this morning, we're going to read a large chunk of scripture, and uh, we're going we're gonna to break it up <laughs> into two principal parts, um, Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, 9. And Paul, in this text, is going to contrast what I'm calling a a culture of idolatry with a culture of right worship. And on a quick read, we might miss that because there's, there's lots of practical guidance and instruction in this text. But fundamentally, it's about right worship and the impact that right worship has on culture and community. So yeah, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise a hand. Usher's got Bibles for uh, for you. Um, if you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. So uh, right worship versus idolatry and how that impacts culture, how that impacts community, how that impacts us uh, as individuals. Paul's going to deal with issues like sexual immorality. He's going to deal with the, uh, with the roles of husbands and wives. He's going to deal with the relationship of children and parents. And he's going to deal with the relationship between masters and slaves. I mean, this is a tough text. It's going to, I think, rub us, at least rub the culture in which we live wrong. <laughs> it's a little bit, well, it's, it's intense. It's going to be intense. Um, but in the midst of uh, in the midst of it, Paul is seeking to call out the idolatry in our hearts and in our communities and call us to a right relationship as a church uh, with our Savior. So, um, his words may be hard, maybe not, maybe we're used to these words, uh, but by God's grace, we've been studying First Timothy alongside Ephesians. If you remember, sort of way back, we said, ah, the letter to Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy is Paul's letter to the church planter. And Ephesians is Paul's letter to the church planted. So I think we'll find as we, as we delve into a, a difficult text that, oh, what we've been talking about in 1 Timothy is really prepping us for, uh, for what we're stepping into now here in Ephesians. Praise, praise God, right? So as we enter this difficult text, I want to remind us of something I think Pastor T said a couple of weeks ago. Satan loves to quote scripture. Like, and it's, it's so simple, and we see it in the text, but it, it's, prof it's, like, 
it's profound. And, and I'm realizing how much better at it he is than I ever thought. He loves to quote scripture, loves to quote the Bible, and he's good at it. So as we hear words that are going to potentially strike us wrong at first listen, let's be quick to listen. And let's seek to set aside how we've used these particular verses, how we've heard these verses used in ways that are abusive, and seek to hear the voice of our loving and gracious God in the midst of them. Set aside Satan's voice, his misuse, and let's seek to understand how to use these, these words, this guidance, to the glory of God. So. Let's also remember that this text is rooted deep in Paul's cultural and historical context. His cultural and historical context was a monarchical, they had a king, right? It was patriarchal and collectivist. They were really concerned about the community over the individual. We live in a society that's democratic. We expect to vote. We live in a, in a society that's, well, it, at very least more egalitarian than Paul's. And we live in a society that is largely individualistic. So whatever we do, however we ultimately understand this text, there's going to be a great deal of work we're going to have to do to apply it in our context. And God's going to call us right in the center of this text to be wise and to seek to, oh, oh, what does he say? Let me, let me find it. Let me not, <laughs> um, oh, and I'm going <laughs> to, right, oh, oh, man, we will find it eventually. Does it, uh, to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, right? It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be difficult. And I do not pretend to come to you this morning with an authoritative understanding of Paul's historical context and how this exactly played out in his world. Nor do I intend to come to you with, a, with an authoritative uh, assessment of our culture. I'm going to preview something that's going to take a lot more thought and a lot more work. And we're going to seek together, I hope, to hear the heart of God in this, to acquaint ourselves with God's wisdom, and take a couple of big ideas and ask, what does it mean for us to be wise? What does it mean for us to live lives of wisdom and of right worship together as families and as a community that we abandon our idols and worship God? So let's pray together. God, we come humbled by the strife and the chaos in the culture around us, humbled by the strife and the chaos in our own hearts at times, praising you and thanking you that you are a God who creates good out of chaos, 
order out of chaos. Love where there was no love before. God, you are good. God, we come confessing that as a people, uh, we have done, uh, uh, we as men have done harm to the women in our community. Father, we confess that that as a people, we, uh, we as adults have done harm to children. That we as members of an economy and a work culture have done harm to employees. That we come crying out because each of us uh, has, has suffered as a part of the sinfulness of our culture as children, as employees as maybe husband and wife or in a dating relationship. God, we know the, the depths of the sinfulness of our culture. We know the depths of the idolatry around sex and about stuff and about coveting. And God, we cry out for your grace, for your forgiveness. And God, we cry out that, that this place that this outpost of your kingdom would be a place where we would be strengthened to be different, to be the image-bearing people you created us to be, that we would be like you, Jesus, that our families would reflect that, that, our ch- that we would lead our children to see that in us and that in our places of work and vocation, our uh, the, uh, our attitudes and our work would display your goodness and the impact you've had on our lives. So God, become humbled by your wisdom and your word, by your goodness and your grace. So God, may we walk um, hard after you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 5.1 is actually the, the close of the previous section, despite the, the, um, the chapter heading. But it, it serves as a good reminder to us of what we're about or what this section is about. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, if we, if we remember back to July, and you probably don't, <laughs> to be honest, I had to go back and look at my notes. What did we do in July? Um, and, I, and I taught it. Um, Paul reminds us, excuse me, Paul reminds us that we've been chosen by God and not just chosen, but adopted into his family. We're now inheritors of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. That's good news. (laughs) And in chapter two, Paul reminds us that we didn't earn this status. We didn't earn this status. It was given to us by grace in response to our faith. But it doesn't just end there, right? God's vision for us, his purpose for us is not just to forgive us our sins so that we can go on in our sinful state. 
He gave us this, this grace to restore us and redeem us that we might live out the good life, the good works which he created for us from the very beginning. For the grace of God and the power of the Spirit brings all people together into a new humanity, into a new family, into a new kingdom centered around Christ. So here, from the beginning, from the first century, God was calling for a multi-ethnic community of God's people to reunite, to undo, in a sense, Babel, to undo, to be, to be the image-bearing people that he created us to be. In chapter 3 now, he admonished us that this family was created in part to suffer. We don't like that, do we? <laughs> that doesn't feel like good news. And yet, in the midst of that suffering, one, God's going to empower us to bear it. He's going to empower us to be a, a witness. And in the midst of that suffering, we're going to know God's love. His son suffered, and he calls us to be like his son, and so we, we ought to expect suffering. Now, that seemingly stark, um, from that seemingly stark contrast between love and suffering in Ephesians 3, Paul moves in Ephesians 4 to define what a life imitating God looks like. And so we, uh, we note Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy to which, that you, to, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, <clears throat> bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called uh, to, the, uh, to the one hope that belongs uh, to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So God is calling us that the spirit-filled life is a life of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and seeking the unity of the body. Not exactly like the list we often hear, right? Maybe not. Maybe. So here in chapter 5, Paul's going to uh, going to uh, contrast what a culture of idolatry looks like versus what a culture of right worship looks like. And his definition or his identifying of a culture of idolatry is going to be recognized, recognizable by disordered sexuality, disordered speech, disordered de and disordered desire. While true worship is going to be recognized by rightly ordered relationships, particular, particularly the relationship between husbands and wives, between parents and children, and what we might call, like in our context, between employers and employees. So, section one, a culture of idolatry. Ephesians 5, 3 to 21. So, read with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be... Um, sorry. 
let's try that again. So went, my family's been rocked by the cold flu business that's uh, that's going around. We've we're on the mend, but yeah. Let's, Ephesians three. But but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous, covetousness must not be even named among you, which is proper among the saints. Therefore, sorry, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for, uh, for because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the, uh, in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything uh, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now. I'm a teacher. I teach, I've been teaching at Christian schools for many years now, and I'm at a new school this year. And I'm, I'm after, a, after a long sojourn in high school, I'm back in middle school and loving it. I don't know, any, any middle, school, middle school teachers? Woo. Just for most of us, just traumatic memories, right? Um, but they're so fun. And, you know, as, as kids do when they're trying to, well, when the teacher's new to the community and when they're trying to avoid doing real work, right? They start peppering you with questions. And so this week they asked me, Swanson, what kind, of, what kind of music do you listen to? What kind of music do you like? I don't know what it was this week, but it like, it sort of caught me off guard. I, I don't, you know, it's a, it's a simple enough question. But I realized that in the last couple of years, my music, what I actually listen to now, like, to be honest, I'm, I'm like mostly podcasts and audiobooks. I, I just, I nerd that way, right? Um, most of my music is worship. It's, and like my, my like inner like millennial who's like desperately trying to be relevant, right? Um, 
and like even as like a kid was never particularly relevant um felt like really like felt a little awkward saying that it's like oh man i'm so lame um i i, I really like um a band called chain and chain which is a, maybe a little bit older but they sing that they sing the psalms in really like creative and like musically and, and i'm not a great musician but musically like wonderful way and that's mostly what i listen to yeah i listen to a guy named john Guerra and ren collective and you know, sometimes you just you've got to throw on Lecrae or Andy Mineo. And then when you really got to get stuff done, it's the like the Hamilton soundtrack. But um, right, you know. Um, yeah. But I realized, and maybe, maybe maybe you're you're with me in this. Much of the music I listened to when I was younger high school, college, it's all about like breakups, right? Or about not not having that person that you love. And like, now that I'm married and have kids, it's like, <sighs> that angst just doesn't, it's just it's not doing anything for me. So, so much of like the popular music, regardless of the genre, yeah, I, I, I feel myself just, it, it just feels a little empty. It feels a little hopeless. And I'm not hopeless. And I think in particular, during the pandemic, like our family found ourselves listening to, I almost, I almost hate to use the genre, like listening to worship music kind of all the time. Whenever we had music on, that's what it was. Because there was hope, right? And, and again, I, I like Shane and Shane because they sing things like Psalm 13, which is deeply, rooted in lament and pain. And so Paul here, he's identifying a problem. We'll talk about what the problem is in a second. But he says right there at the end, he says, he says, look, the solution, the antidote to the problem is to address one, is to be, be filled with the spirit Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's just like that's his first step. Could we, we just praise God for our, for our worship team? Just for just like, can we just woo? Praise God for their gifts up here. Praise God for our our our, our sound folk uh, in the back and who do all the setup. Praise God for our ushers who help us worship, like help us find our way, right? But there's there's something here where Paul's like, look, in the face of idolatry, an idolatrous culture around, maybe an idolatrous culture that's in our hearts, worship psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are a deep deeply rooted and significant part of the antidote to that poison along with that he says thanksgiving be thankful so i say this about my family and myself not to like say oh look at me but to say like we've i think we've stumbled into by god's grace and by the by the power of his Holy Spirit, this reality that like, man, to, to live the good life in the face of a culture of chaos, 
requires worship to be the thing regularly on our lips. I think back to some of my like struggles as a late teen, early 20s, you know, the, the I, I, don't, I had a number of breakups and all, all that stuff and disappointments and, and often going to whatever like the, the latest like sad angsty pop song was and just sort of stay in in the sad and the angst. But when we turn to worship God, yeah, we, we can live in that sad angst, but we don't have to stay there, right? So what's the, so if that's the, if praise and thanksgiving is a significant part of the antidote, what's the sickness? And I think I find this fascinating because I wouldn't have expected this, right? <laughs> Plus, is the sickness, the sickness comes out in, um, uh, in a number of negative commands. He says, do not have anything to do with sexual morality or impurity or covetousness. Don't let any of that stuff be named among you. No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. Did we just, like, did we just describe like half of what's on TV and like Netflix? <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe my, my, like, my younger millennial like, groupies and I didn't need to be so worried about being relevant. Maybe the, maybe the Bible is, is really relevant, right? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, he connects this to, like, to, to bigger things. He says, look, the sexually immoral, the impure, the covetous, they're, that's idolatry. And this isn't abstract for him, right? He's in Ephesus, which is the, which is the, excuse the term, the Vatican of Artemis worship. It's the world center of Artemis worship with all its sort of disgusting festivals. Because um, in Asia, Artemis had, from Greece, had been combined with the local um, fertility gods. So all of this is very interconnected, very much a part of the culture, very like upfront and in your face. It's maybe, it's maybe subtler in our culture. Certainly the idolatry piece is. He says, look, if, if you're in that, if you've given yourself to, let's put it that way, if you've given yourself to sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, to that sort of idolatry, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Thanks. And then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. So take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, this is a, this is a small line. Don't be deceived by empty words. But I think what that's telling us, like Paul's not talking to the, to the non-believers in Ephesus, is he? He's talking to the church. So where are these empty words being found? I guess is in the church. And we see that when John writes to Ephesus later, in the first couple chapters of Revelation, there's this concern about those in the church who are saying, hey, 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 the culture of sexual immorality, it's not a big deal. You've got grace. You just do you, man. Just have fun. Why do you got to be so uptight? Just give in to the culture, to the feasting, to the sexual morality. You've got grace. Don't worry about it. Don't listen to all those uptight people. It's like, 
No, you can't do that. If you give yourself over to the idolatry, the sexual morality, the impurity, the, the covetousness, you have no inheritance in the kingdom. It's hard because that describes so much of our culture. And again, that's, that's not a, that is not a word of, to them of condemnation. It's a word of warning to rush back to grace. And what's fascinating to me this morning is the antidote for sexual morality, impurity, crude jokes, uh, covetousness is worship and thanksgiving. I think back to just my own struggles and how much of my struggle with God to, to walk with him faithfully was that I wasn't thankful, that I wasn't intentionally thankful for all the good things that he had given. When we find ourselves rushing into sin, how often is it because we were not willing to wait for him or to thank him for the good things he's given? Parents in the room, like we see this with our kids, don't we? I'm a, I'm a new dad. <laughs> Less new than I used to be, but it still feels new. I want my daughter to wait for the good things that her mom and I have for her. She's melting down. Oh, man, I do this to God all the time. I do this to God all the time. So Paul's... Paul's antidote to all of this is praise and thanksgiving. Now, I, I brought up music. I brought up the music I listen to. I don't mean to like restrict you to like good Christians only listen to Christian music. It's not, that's not my point. Don't hear that. There's great art to be, there's great art and great beauty to be engaged in. Some of it explicitly Christian, some of it not. And yet, and yet, there's power. And spiritual root to be found in engaging in the Psalms, in the great hymns of the church, in those spiritual songs that point us back to Jesus. That that's a regular part of our like uh, uh, listening and verbal vocabulary. That's going to bear fruit. It's going to bear fruit. So, for in the same way. Now, in the same way that immor sexual morality, crude joking, covetousness, and idolatry, uh, sorry, is idolatry or is uh, symptomatic of idolatry. So Paul's going to go on to say in, in, in section two here that rightly ordered marriage, family, and workplace relationships are a picture of Christ and the church. So, um. I'm going to argue, and I think from Paul here, that right uh, that cult, that a culture of rightly ordered worship is results in, or, or or and comes from rightly ordered marriage relationships, rightly ordered parenting relationships, and rightly ordered work relationships. So, section uh, next section, we're going to look at marriage. Ephesians 5, 22 to, 20, uh, to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, 
his, uh, to the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing uh, by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, uh, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives uh, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife uh, his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are now, uh, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here, first point of rightly ordered worship results in right relationship. We hear Paul's instructions to husbands and wives, and we enter into what is, well, the first of what might feel like a really contentious passage in our age. In our culture, right? Reading, wives, submit to your husbands. And it doesn't go over well in a lot of, in a lot of, in a lot of places. And we know, I think, the misuse and abuse and the way in which Satan has twisted this to justify all sorts of wickedness. It's maybe, maybe one of the great verses for you shouldn't proof text. Um, we need this whole passage. So let's, uh, let's take a look. Notice um, uh, verses 22 and 24 are the instructions to wives, then uh, 25 to 33. So instructions to wives, instructions to husbands. Um, uh, uh, 25 to 33 is the instructions for husbands. So um, what do we do with this? Um, well, it starts and ends with this call to for wives to submit to their own husband. It does not say, let's just be clear, it does not say women submit to men. Okay? <laughs> right? So sometimes we get a little like messed up in our translation or in our recollection. It doesn't say that, right? calls wives to submit to their husbands. Now, Paul is speaking in the midst of a far more patriarchal culture than ours is, um, or at least in, in all of our families and, and, and things maybe uh, have functioned differently. But so for the, the original audience, this wouldn't have been particularly controversial. It would have been, in fact, like this sort of statement would have been um, the mark of a respectable family. And let's be clear, the phrase in everything um, Certainly, because he says, uh, uh, submit to your husbands in everything, uh, maybe cause for concern, right? We know the sinfulness of people. We know the shortcomings of, uh, of people, particularly husbands, right? Um, but Paul here, um, I, it seems pretty clear that Paul here is just giving, he's giving a general 
instruction, right? Um, we might tell our children to always obey the, the instructions of the teacher or the coach or some other adult authority in their life. But when we say that, we really mean, well, unless they tell you to do something really foolish. And unfortunately, like we live in a world where sometimes adults do do terrible and, and foolish things with children. So this is not a, this is not, Paul is not here, and I think it's pretty clear, and we'll see this from his instructions to the husbands, saying, wives, you do whatever your husband tells you, regardless of how silly or foolish or sinful it is. Doesn't fit with the rest of scripture. It just doesn't, right? Um, so uh, we, if we think about the rest of scripture, let's be clear, right? How is wisdom personified in the in Proverbs? How's it personified? Do you remember? As a, in a wife and a mother. Wisdom. Look at mom. Right? Some, for some of us, that's really easy, right? We think, oh, wisdom? Yeah, mom, mom was wise. Grandma was wise. So Paul here is not removing from wisdom responsibility, or sorry, is not removing from women responsibility, agency, discernment, volition, that, 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 that's not his intention at all. We must read it in the, light of the rest of, in the light of the rest of Scripture. He's not disregarding the value and worth of women, but instead just, just clarifying the relationship. Follow your man's lead. Be on the same team. Just as in the church, we seek to follow Christ and be found on his team. Practicalities of that, it's hard. What does that look like in our context? But let's let's shift to the husband. Verse 25, he then turns to the husband. And in Paul's day, like what he's going to say to the husband, I think was radical, deeply radical. And here, in like he's he's gonna like in like a sentence, he is going to gut any opportunity any pretense that the Bible is calling for what we might call toxic patriarchy. He's not down with that. He says, okay, husbands, I just told you your wives to submit to you. Now, you lay down your life for your wife as Christ laid down his life for the church. <laughs> that... That's tough, right? That's tough. Paul, I think, is, well, Paul pictures the wife's submission as a recognition of the authority of a husband who imitates the self-sacrificial, nurturing, and supporting role that Christ fills with respect for the church. And while, look, while plenty of husbands loved their wives in the ancient world, it would seem to it would seem that this call to lay down, guys, our, our lives for our wives was radical was as radical then as it is. I think it is now. Far more typical in the ancient world. The far more typical approach to marriage in the ancient world was that a wife should manage the household, manage the household well in order to free a husband from domestic concern 
uh, and enhance the family's social prestige. By contrast, Paul's comparison between a, uh, between a husband's love for his wife and Christ's love for the church implies that, uh, that a husband's love for his wife should be so broad, so long, so high, so deep, that it includes the sacrifice of his own social prestige, his own well-being, indeed his very life for the sake of his wife. So the call of a wife to submit to her husband does not, uh, does not give him free reign to be a tyrant. Far from it. God has given the husband the responsibility to care for with his very life. Guys, with our very lives, we're to care for our wives. And Paul says, that shows, that puts, when we do that, that puts on display Christ's care and love for the church. Paul says, like the love of a husband for his wife should be like the love of Jesus for the church. He describes how Christ sanctifies the church with the gospel, with the word, that the church might be glorified with him. And this brings, uh, like, I think a couple of questions to, to, to my mind as a husband. Husbands, are we invested in the spiritual life and well-being of our wives? Boyfriends, let's just back it up for a second. Boyfriends, are we invested in the spiritual life and well-being of our girlfriends? Are we a help or an impediment to our wife's spiritual growth? And in like manner, men, are, are we growing spiritually? For I think, well, for one of the things we see in this text, and I think we see more broadly in the scripture, as the husband goes, so goes the family. How many families do we see mom laying down her life for the husband and the kids? And, and praise God they do. And, and, I, and I say this looking in the mirror as a dad and a husband, are, are we laying down our lives for our wives? God puts that responsibility on us to, to show the world what Jesus is like by the way we love our wife and our kids. Point two, rightly ordered parent-child relationships. Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all the parents said, amen. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the second form of right submission, um, or the second set of, of, of rightly ordered relationships that lead to and, and flow out of right worship um, is, the, is the relationship between parents and children. This one, maybe, I think, uh, at least a little bit less controversial um, in our culture. It starts very simply, children obey your parents. And it, seem, uh, it seems that honoring, and it seems to me at least, it, uh, in reflecting over this text, <laughs> because this is, this is from the Ten Commandments, that um, 
that honoring and obeying parents is actually like a, is actually a spiritual discipline for our kids. It was a spiritual discipline for us. That in honoring and obeying our parents, we practice honoring and obeying God. Again, uh, sometimes, sometimes we have uh, broken relationships with our parents that have made honoring them much more, much more challenging. And yet, right, um, God, God's general command is obey them, honor them, I think as a spiritual discipline. He says, like, look, you will live long if you get this right, Israel, he says through Moses. You're going to live long in the land. You're going to live long. Like you, the, the, the judgment and the cursing and the discipline that's going to come if you rebel and fall into idolatry, you're not going to worry. You have to worry about that if children simply obey their parents. So this, this obeying produces long-term spiritual fruit. But then he shifts to dads. Again, as a new dad, it's like, oh, okay. Here we go. I think Paul might say something like, um, dads, your kids are not your 1960s football team, okay? Your family is not Marine Corps boot camp, right? We go back to, he says, he says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, Again, this do not provoke to anger doesn't mean you're never going to upset them. Right? We're going to upset our kids because sometimes our kids' desires, sometimes my desires as a kid were disordered. But we go back to chapter four. Paul might say something, something like this. Dads, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love and, uh, and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, parent your children. Remembering that God is your father, and, and really God is their father too. Paul has, I think Paul is going to have more to say about this uh, in, in the next section. But he's calling us to, to patient, gentle shepherding not to a culture of like a fear and punishment with our kids. More on that in a minute. Final section. And the one that's maybe needs a trigger warning. Starts out with bond servants. Let's be real. Slaves. Okay. Let's just translate that the way we should. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Ephesians 6, verse 5. But we, uh, obey them with a sincere heart, as you would obey Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both uh, their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. 
So address the piece in, in our context. Before we can talk about masters and slaves, let's be clear. Let's be clear of the whole Bible narrative. The primary narrative of the scripture is Israel being freed from cruel slavery in Egypt. And then again, sort of same story repeated, Christ died to free all of us from slavery to sin. Let there be no confusion. We serve an emancipating God. And yet, for Paul, at the same time, he, he regularly refers to himself as a slave, a slave of Christ. And Paul lives in a culture that includes slavery. So here, he's going to address how to live in it. But that addressing how to live in it is not an affirmation of it. Let's be careful. And, and, and even more so, his addressing slavery in his context is in no way an affirmation of the chattel slavery of, the, of American history, nor the racism that went with it. The picture of slavery as prescribed in Israel, because God talks about slavery, he gives instructions as to how to deal with slaves in the Torah, in, uh, in the first five books, in the books of the law. And, 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 and I'm not an expert on this issue, but when we read those passages with the restraints, with the instructions, slavery in ancient Israel, as prescribed by God, looks a whole lot more like contract labor that is a part of a larger social safety net than anything that we would call slavery today. So, as we look at this particular form of right relationship, I'm going to argue that our primary point of connection here and application for us in this moment is between like employer and employee. And in saying that, I don't mean to in any way sidestep the larger historical or ethical issue around, discussion around slavery. It's just beyond the scope of what we have time for this morning. That's a series. So Paul says, he starts this discussion with earthly masters or fleshly masters, which I think implicitly calls to mind um, you're just their master on earth. And he's going to end with, we both have a master in heaven. And he doesn't care who has more money or who has more title when it comes to that final judgment. But he says to, to slaves, they would put it maybe in our context, we, we employees, not, not saying that they're the same, Obey with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is a is an idiom. It's a it's a a way of saying, um, like a, a way of saying acknowledging your subordinate position. Obey sincerely and from the heart. Obey as to Christ. Not saying that a master over a slave or an employer over an employee it holds the same authority to Christ? No, 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 not saying that. 
but saying like all our work, whether it's you know our first job mowing lawns or working at McDonald's or whatever, to whatever our, our, our career ends up being, like that work we do ought to be done to the glory of Christ. So obey, do the work that you've been assigned, not as people pleasers, not just doing your job when the boss is watching, but with sincerity and honesty. Do your work with goodwill, knowing that the ultimate reward is from the Lord. That's hard. That's hard. Those are hard words in some of the contexts in which we examine and see slavery historically. But nobody says to masters. He says, masters, you do the same thing. That, I think, is low-key radical. It has deep, and has profound implications. Masters, maybe in our context, employers, understand that you are being overseen by Christ and are subject to him. Obey Christ with fear and trembling. Obey Christ as your ultimate source of authority. It's his good and his righteousness and, and, and him that you have to honor, not the bottom line, not your profit margin, not your whoever your CEO is or your board is or your stockholder, shareholder, whatever it is. It's Christ that you are responsible to. And obey with sincerity and Christ with sincerity and honesty. Work working for Christ with goodwill. So once again here, Paul is subtly, maybe more subtly than we would prefer, gutting out any possibility, or he's <laughs> trying to, of, inhum of, uh, of inhumane treatment, of cruelty, of violence, and fear that has been so part and parcel to slaveholding, having employees from the beginning of time. Notice he says at the end, he says, masters, stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is, uh, who is their master and yours in, is in heaven and he is not partial. So for in, uh, so um, Paul, uh, Paul here gives, he gives this like this deep admonishment to masters Maybe we recall what he says to Philemon um, as he requires masters to see their, their, their slaves as image bearers and as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he gives slaves a, a roadmap for honoring God and being a good witness in the midst of their slavery. A roadmap that might recall for us the story of Joseph. Right? It's in the midst of his suffering that he's glorified. And, and Christ does the same, right? For us in our context, Paul is joining what we've, I think we were learning more and more from the fields of psychology, that we ought not lead through fear and violence. It's far better to lead with love and charity. So I'm a parent and I'm a, uh, a classroom teacher and seeing more and more that the latest research is echoing Paul here, I think, um, that establishing a cheerful culture of doing the right thing 
giving those in your in uh, who follow you clear expectations and routines in order to to like do those right things to do what's expected will result in a thriving community with outcomes stronger over the long term than if we lead through fear and punishment so while while Paul here doesn't like outright call for a revolution against the slave system in ancient Rome, he does significantly undermine it. What this means for us as employees is that in, in our context is that we ought to do our work for the Lord, uh, uh, for, uh, as if for the Lord or really for the Lord, for he is our ultimate reward. Not our 401k or lack thereof, right? <laughs> Not whatever our health, but like Christ is our reward. And therefore we ought to work um, with sincerity, honesty, and goodwill. So that he would put Christ, put the character of Christ on display in the midst of a lost and dying world. And in like manner, if you have the privilege of being an employer, whether it's a shift manager or uh, whatever the VP or president or CEO or whatever, whatever, whatever the title might be. Like fathers, like husbands, you have the opportunity to put the character of Christ on display for your employees. I, uh, I work, I, I, I work in a school and I uh, moved school this, this year. And I, uh, um, uh, my boss is named, her name is Mandy. She's a, she's an incredible woman. And I, I'm realizing here at the end that I, that I missed sort of the, the, I think I failed to mention verse 21, uh, looking back, it says, he says at the end of his sort of antidote, along with singing and giving thanks, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's a, that's a, that's a curious statement if we stop and think about it. What does it look like for a husband when Paul has just said, well, like wives submit to your husbands, what does it look like for a, a husband to submit to his wife? Well, it's, it's laying down his life for her. What does it look like for a father who's been instructed that his children ought to obey him to submit to his kids? Well, again, it's laying down his life. It's being patient. It's being kind. It's being a, sh a good shepherd. What does it mean for an employer? Well, I look at my boss. And every day, I hear from her genuine care for the students that we serve, and for me, and for the health of our community. She's in charge, but she cares, and she's not. And she's not. And she'd tell you she's just she's just a normal. She's just a, a a lifelong teacher who loves kids and loves Jesus. But she's not in it for the power. She's not in it for the. She cares about me as an employee. She cares about the students that we're serving. And she's laying down her life for the cause of the gospel in the context of the work that we're in. So Paul, Paul says, there's a culture of idolatry, of disordered worship that results in disordered sexuality, disordered speech, and disordered desire. And the antidote is twofold. Thankfulness, or, well, 
sort of two sets of two sets of antidote: thankfulness, praise, and submitting to one another. Which means rightly ordered marriage, rightly ordered parenting relationships, rightly ordered vocation. Paul's calling us to submit to one another. That our families, that our work relationships, that our church would model Christ-likeness as we live out grace and love together. So God is calling us, and it's hard, right? And yet hopeful to lay down our lives for the good of our spouses, for the good of our children, and for the good of those we work with, with thanksgiving and the word of God flowing from our lips that the world would know that Jesus is Lord because of us. Let's pray. God, we come um, humbled by your commands and call in our life. God, may be intimidated by the call to, um, to lay down our lives. God, we thank you that by your grace and by the power of your spirit, that, that in, even in the hardness, even in the confrontation, there's hope. There's life. There's real peace available to us by your grace. So God, build us up. Give us patience, humility, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control that we would indeed learn to live like you as a people, that the world would see you in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.